0: Psalm 37, verses 3 and 4, trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. He will give you the desires of your heart. Last week we started a series called The Waiting, and as we celebrate Advent, this being the very first Sunday of Advent, this Christian celebration of the waiting, of the coming of the birth of the King of Kings, we think about this within the context of the holiday season, and as much as it should be a relief, I think for many of us it's a tension, it's a trap, it's something that's difficult, because what Advent, what the waiting, what the season does to us? is it forces us to come to grips with our dreams. Because this is the season of dreams, isn't it? I always found it interesting in the Christmas poem, The Night Before Christmas, we see this view of, uh, of children and the way that it's expressed is visions of sugar plums, and dancing in their heads Sh- visions of sugar plums I I had many dreams and visions when I was growing up but it was not of sugar plums yes I know some of you have dreams and again that's the, what's interesting right is that that word speaks of the, what happens with us as we sleep but it also speaks to something greater and sometimes those collide so maybe some of you do have dreams of eating food and that's great But very often when we have these dreams, they're interconnected with what we want in our lives. And if I can take you back to 1984, Christmas time, The desire of my heart was not sugar plums, but it was Transformers. Now, for some of you who are younger and maybe you're amped up about the Bumblebee movie that will soon be released. But this goes back to the idea that these were toys created that spun the narrative. It was all a marketing ploy, Transformers. And the interesting thing about that was a toy is a toy is a toy, but this was actually two toys in one, right? They transformed, so you could have your semi-tractor trailer, but it became Optimus Prime, Defender of the Universe. The one that I love most is you could have Megatron, which was more realistic as a pistol, which speaks to how society has changed, but it became Megatron, leader of the Decepticons. It was the coolest thing to happen in 1984, and it coincided with Christmas. But here's the rub. As much as many a young west side boy, in addition to Steve, wanted his Transformers, at the same time a marketing company unre- released their own version of that called the GoBots. Now many of you might not be with, familiar with the GoBots, but as you can imagine they were just nowhere near as cool as Transformers. Yeah, they did the same thing. They were two things at once. But then, uh, just really the, the look of it was ridiculous. I don't know if you can see on the left, but it was a, a Porsche 911, which was a cool car, but when it transformed, it was basically, it, it just looked like, uh, you know, a Porsche with arms. It was not nearly as cool. So when I w- told my parents during Christmas time, I wanted a, a, something that could transform, and by the way, this might have been something, we didn't believe in Santa Claus growing up, we didn't have that, and, but if this had happened, it would have totally negated the belief in Santa Claus, because obviously, I did not get Transformers cr- for Christmas, I got GoBots. Dreams crushed. Now, here's the thing. I don't put this on my parents just trying to say, like, hey, let's figure out how we can get back at young Steve as best as possible, right? Like, they were not that maniacal. They just really did not think there was any difference between the two. So on Christmas morning, when I faked this enthusiasm for GoBots when I did not receive Transformers, knowing very well that I'd have to go to school back in January with a GoBot, and not a Transformer. I tried to figure out how to respond and to react. And you know what, 1984, Steve did a great job. Because he didn't let it get to him, he knew that his parents tried, and he was enthusiastic over his GoBots. But the very next year, it took one entire cycle in 1985. That's when I had Transformer Christmas, and then the GoBots, they they went GoBot, and they were gone, never to be seen again. This is the time of dreams, and the reason that even my story, because you're like, look, Steve's an entitled SOB, right? He's standing up there. I don't feel bad for Steve, but you feel a little bad for 1984, Steve, because it's this idea of years that nobody wants to disappoint a kid around Christmas time, Right? And this is one of the reasons why, and by the way, we are still, uh, and Kendra's overseeing this, we are raising, um, we're gathering gifts for neighborhood kids who need them, and we can, I'm sure we'll talk about that during announcements, but one of the reasons that you are probably going to respond to that, and this time of year has that big response with buying things for kids, is because nobody wants a child to have his dreams crushed at Christmas time, because it's difficult when your dreams are crushed. What I get to do is we're talking about the series of the waiting, is talk about this idea of the times of silence. The the Old Testament ends in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. We read those beginning to start with this. It just says, hey, uh, something's going to happen, something's going to move. But then after the prophet said something's going to move, the mute button is hit and nothing happens. And we wonder how we get from that Old Testament experience to the birth of Jesus. And that's what we want to talk about, is that the dreams to come. I loved what Kelly was able to write, and I'm sure we'll find a place online to post that because some of you might have missed it. But it was this verse that really spoke out to me about our dreams. Is because she, she wrote, we hold it timidly, most preciously, our dreams. A fragile piece of us for everyone to see. So when the people of God had dreams and God hits the mute button on them, what happens to those dreams? And more important, were those the dreams that they needed to have and how were those expressed? So I want to talk about three different instances today. So this is more topical in nature, but it really sets us up because I want us to understand, and this is my job today, what happened in the silence. What were those dreams? And when they weren't realized, how did they react? The first thing we need to talk about is the Jewish leaders. And you know, this is the world into which Jesus was born. Jesus was a Jewish baby born in israel to a jewish family and that land was very much influenced by the religious leaders of the day so when we get to the new testament we see that jesus is always arguing with like pharisees and these teachers of the law and you're like who put a stick up there just to get them to the point where they had attitude and that was created during the time of silence Because what they were trying to do was make sure that God's truth existed all the way throughout the rest of eternity, and they were stewards of this. But the path wasn't easy. And just to give us a little geekery on this morning, this is what I wanted to do in the silence, is for us to be able to see where were they and who were they by the time Jesus arrived. Because the first thing we have to understand is God's people lived in captivity, Right about 700 years before Jesus was born, God said, uh, you know, I'm going to punish the northern tribes of Israel because of their sin. And he punished a part of Israel. And then just 150 years later, he allowed the Babylonian army to come in and to take a a large portion of God's people captive back to their own land. They were drug away, and during that time, they had to figure out what does it mean for us to be followers of Jesus. So captivity, this narrative that starts in Exodus and something that they lived in Babylon, was part of the story of God's people. But then God said, I will bless you. I will allow you to go back to your land. And when the Persians took over, God's people were released to go back to the land. But when they went back, it was in shambles. So they went to captivity, and then once they got their footing, this man named Alexander the Great came to power. And many of us remember the rise of this one of the greatest people to live in human history in the fourth century B.C. Alexander rose, and he conquered the world like no one had ever done before. And one of the ways that he was able to do this is Alexander said, look, I'm going to take Macedonian Greek culture and I'm going to spread it everywhere. And then it came to Jerusalem and Alexander marches to the gate and in the most peculiar incident in the existence of the life of Alexander the Great, the guy who conquered everybody walked into Jerusalem and said, hey, y'all, be chill. Just hang out for a little. I'm okay with you. You do your own thing. It was like God protected that one little area in the midst of the, of the conqueror. So they went from total captivity to this place where they were free to live, but then once Alexander dies, they're back in the same thing. They're oppressed, and new rulers rise up, and they stick to the Jews until the Jews are able to revolt. Some of us have Catholic backgrounds. Maybe you remember the book of Maccabees in the Apocrypha right there. For us who are maybe a little bit more culturally, you know, relatable, this was the rise of the festival of Hanukkah, and what happened is the Jews rose up, and they were able to rebel against their captors, and for a while, they were free, but what was funny is that even in their freedom, there was oppression because the Jewish leaders became oppressive, and then Rome came up, and Rome was in charge when Jesus came into the world. But this is what was interesting for the Jews, is that that whole time, the Jews were looking for something greater, and they never found it. See, the Dru- Jews had this dream. What they wanted to see is the nation of Israel to be restored to where it once was. They wanted to relive the glory days and live in a place to where God was truly king over their nation. But the dream was crushed in the reality, is that they were captives, and even though they were back in their land, their freedoms were limited. So what do you do when your freedoms are limited? You respond. And what was their response? It would be interesting because you think their response might be holy, but the reality was is that they took the religion and they made it oppressive themselves. And when Jesus comes in the world, to be a Jewish person was to fall into a system of hierarchy and wealth when everybody was poor and religious captivity that was even worse than the nations that ruled over them. So they had a dream. Their dream was crushed, but the response was one to to just take the sin in which they lived and to make it law. Can I tell you the second group I want to look at right now, or the second individual, would be Herod the Great. And this is the time of year that we talk about Herod the Great. Because as the Romans came in, even though there was a Caesar, they realized that each of the individual areas needed to have somebody over them. And at this point, the man who, who ruled over God's people in Israel was Herod the Great. Now, you can see Herod was born about 70 years before Jesus was born. And Herod was an interesting fellow. He was actually able to come into power because he sided with the right rulers, the right Caesar. But here's the thing. Even though he was called the king of the Jews and put in that place, the Jews rejected him. Because Herod was of a, a, a nationality called Idumean. And if you ever see uh, pictures of Petra in Jordan, the, the, the stone carved reliefs in, 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 uh, in the walls uh, there in the Middle East, that was his background. And what the Idumeans were, where they were the descendants of God's people, the Israelites, intermixed with the Edomites. And again, this is a little geekery, but I think it's important for us to understand is that when we read the Bible, the Edomites were the sworn enemies of God's people. They hated the Edomites. And therefore, because they had mixed with God's people, they hated the Idumeans. So when Herod is the king, how do they feel about him? They hate him. Now, Herod was a maniacal dude, but at the same time, he has this aspect of all of us within our dreams. He just wanted to be loved. He wanted to be adored. He wanted to be respected. So you know what he did? He made changes, and positive changes. Herod was actually renowned as one of the greatest builders of his day. There was a port right next to the Mediterranean Sea called Caesarea Philippi that he created. He built aqueducts. He built places for boats to ship. It made Israel more metropolitan. When it came to Jerusalem, he's like, look, if this is the capital, I want it to look beautiful. Beautiful. He built a brand new palace, an amphitheater, market. He built all this. And ultimately, the way he was trying to brown nose to God's people is Herod builds the temple. The temple had been destroyed and had been rebuilt really crappily, you know, like with duct tape and twigs and such. So Herod's like, look, I'm going to build such a temple that'll be amazing. And the stones where the Jews pray today at the Western Wall are stones that Herod the Great actually had moved there. Stones as broad as the stage right here that they were able to move into place still exist because he was such an accomplished builder. Herod said, I want to be loved and I'm going to give you everything you want and then both of our dreams will be fulfilled and he built and they still hated him. They still hated him. So Herod, living out his dreams, what does Herod want? This king, he wants to be adored by his people but what's funny is the reality was he was despised by them So when that happens, what does Herod do? He becomes maniacal. Herod had more people killed than you could ever imagine. And this is the reason why, when he heard that the king of the Jews was going to be born in nearby Bethlehem, he's like, I'll fix that. I'll kill all the babies there. And therefore, I will still be king. By the way, this is the thing I love about Herod. (laughs) I don't love about him, but I find it interesting, is that when he died, he had a decree. It's like, once I die, then all all of my royal household are supposed to be killed because I want them to die with me. So Herod dies, and everybody's like, hey, we're not doing that, right? And they live to tell that story. Can I tell you one more story from the waiting? And this comes right to the precipice of the waiting because this is a story maybe with which we're more familiar. The story of Joseph, the father of Jesus. Of Of all key historical figures, even in that time, we might know the least about Joseph. We don't know exactly when he was born. You know, you were like, okay, he was going to be married to Mary. Mary was likely a teenager because that's when they got married at that point. So probably at the most, Joseph might be knocking on 20, but he could be a teenager himself. We don't know when he was born. We don't know when Joseph died. We know that he died sometime between Jesus being presented to the temple at age 12 and sometime before Jesus started his ministry. We know very little about his life except a few things that God's word tells us. And if I'm trying to tell us, what's the dream of Joseph? His dream was just to be normal, to have a nice little family, to raise some kids and do his work. We read in the Bible that he was a carpenter, and actually the word tecton means he was probably a stone cutter. He might even cut some of the stones that Herod used to build the temple. So he worked hard with his hands. It was an arduous thing. He just wanted a simple, simple life. And then he finds out his fiance is pregnant. And by doing the maths, he determines that he is not the dad of his fiance's baby. Right? So, this allows Joseph an opportunity. Yeah, his dreams are, but he could respond here. Even though his dreams of normalcy are crushed, what could Joseph have done? Joseph actually, because of the laws that the Jewish leadership had put into it, he could have had Mary killed, he could have brought her before charges and had her stoned. You know, I was going to say, he also could have done something a little less and had her deposed, her outcast, as an adulteress with a bastard child and she could have lived out and nobody would ever have known, right? And if you think about it, in some ways, that was almost a death penalty in of itself. But how does Joseph respond when his dreams are crushed? Joseph doesn't get, like, like vindictive. He doesn't get legalistic, He doesn't get murderous. What Joseph says is like, look, I'm going to just let her go privately. We'll hide the manor, and she'll be fine, and I'll move on with my life. You know, maybe in this decision, Joseph was even saying, I'll never wed again. I'll just live in isolation to who I am. And even in that then, God speaks to Joseph and says, hey, don't worry about Mary. This is me, not her, and this is what I need you to do. And God gives Joseph steps to follow to move on. See, this is why when we look at the Jewish leadership and how they respond, you can sort of see the mentality they're reacting. You can see, I'm not trying to justify Herod wanting to kill a lot of babies, but you can see why he was at that point. And yet Joseph, who very well could have turned on a dime there, when he had his dreams of family life and it descended into absolute chaos, Joseph said, look, I'm going to be level-headed and respond to the call of God. Friends, this is the seasons of dreams, but I'm going to offer that it's the season of dreams unfulfilled. And I think that's difficult. I think as much as you and I love to project about what could happen in our lives in the future, the more detrimental thing in our existence is this idea that what we've always wanted will not happen to us. And maybe that's been your 2018, or maybe it's been your decade. Maybe it's even been your life. Your dreams have let, yet to be fulfilled. But I think what we can see in the waiting in the silence is that even when our dreams aren't being fulfilled, that God could, in fact, be doing something bigger than we even imagine. If only the Jewish leaders had understood how much better it would have been for the kingdom of God had they just cultivated a good love and respect for his law, then maybe everything could have been different. Maybe if Herod could have figured out, maybe these people don't love me, but maybe there's a better response, perhaps history could have been thwarted. But yet, even in the midst of those unfulfilled dreams, you see God moving and working. And today we exist. We're the beneficiaries. So what I would say is, what do you and I do when our dreams are chaos and unfulfilled? The first thing I think you and I need to do is we need to articulate the correct dream. And again, this isn't to say that you can't have desires and aspirations in your life. But let me ask that question I think we pose there. Is what is God's best for me? What is God's best for me? Because very often we'll articulate dreams that might not be the best of what God wants for me. It's what I, if I were God, want them to be for me. And I need to stop. And ask myself, is this a dream that I am pursuing outside of what God is doing in my life? Or is this something that I'm just saying, look, God, I don't know what you're saying, but I'm going to dream of what your best for me is. Friends, that's a dream of maturity. And I'll admit that even though I've lived past four decades on this earth, I have yet to always articulate my dreams in that way. So I have to remind myself, just like we need to remind ourselves, what is God's best for us? And then the reality is, what do we do then if those dreams aren't realized? Because maybe you even have some dreams that you're saying, look, if God would do this, I could use my dreams to do so much for him, and then those dreams don't come to reality. What do we tend to do? We tend to blame God. We tend to get angry at God. We shut him off until God is convenient for us because our dreams are not fulfilled. But perhaps God is actually working toward that fulfillment and we don't get to see the end date. We don't get to see the expiration. Because friends, the reality is is that Joseph's dreams of familial bliss might not have been fulfilled in his day, but after his death, what he created and was able to cultivate as a family made the difference in all of our lives. The baby survived. The baby became the leader that he needed to be. The baby died for our sins. Was that Joseph's dream? Probably not. But did God really accomplish Joseph's best in process? Yes. That's tough to deal with. That's why I think our response has to be this. How will you live day by day when your dreams are shattered and chaotic and crushed? I think that's the hardest thing to do. It's the hardest thing for us to do. had this conversation with the daughter yesterday. And by the way, it has to do with wrestling, so stick with me. But one of the cool things about wrestling right now, professional wrestling, TV, not like fake high school wrestling and stuff. I'm talking about real professional wrestling. It's a big industry right now, and believe it or not, there are young people who have the dreams of becoming WWE wrestlers, right? So what's funny is that it used to be you just would go out to all these little small territories. Cincinnati, by the way, was quite the wrestling hotbed. (laughs) But now they go to the Performance Center in Orlando, Florida, near Full Sail University, and they train to be wrestlers. But you know what that means is for every day, you know, they get weekends and a few times weeks off. But for every day for years, they can toil at the center of this. And it was funny is that the coach, you know, they did one of these behind the scenes documentary of it that they put out. And it was funny, the coach said, the problem is, is that they have a dream. But what they don't see is the day to day when they're putting in all this work, how this work equals their dream. So day to day when they're running against the ropes and getting rope burns and getting their face shoved into the canvas and they don't have anything to show for it they don't even they can't connect how their dream is being fulfilled in the work of today. I think that's the hardest thing for us to be humans is that we have dreams but friends it takes the grind. So how are you going to live day by day? How are you going to trust the God of the universe to cultivate your dream? That's why I know some of you were a little uh, delayed in coming in this morning, and Kelly read her poem, and I think it merits reading again as she talks about the waiting, is that God asks of you, wait again? Yes, wait. Not to punish, not to break your spirits, but to give, him, to, but to give time for his best, to bring you rest, to fulfill more than you guess. Because his dream for you won't shatter on the floor, it won't flash, then be no more, won't burden you to your core. His dream will make you more of you, more than you've ever been. His dream for you is more of you than you ask or imagine. Because he sees all of you, everything you were, everything you are, everything you can be, all at once, wrapped up in one shimmering, terrific dream, a gift he wants you to receive, to try to trust and to believe, and try, hold out your hands, close your eyes, breathe out a sigh and wait that's the tough part friends waiting for the dream to come true and that's what this season signifies for us a wise man once said last week as hard as it is to wait it's going to be worth it i think that's what this season cultivates in us as we wait for christmas time and the dreams fulfilled and the dreams shattered before this we still wait in faithfulness and fidelity to believe that God's best is there for you. How do we know that? Because it exists in the newborn king. It exists in the son of God. It exists in baby Jesus. And that's why we begin with poetry from Twas the Night Before Christmas and we end with Little Town in Bethlehem and that beautiful lyric, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Friends, why do we make such a big deal about this time of year? It's not just the dreams that come with the singular holiday. No, it's the dream fulfilled in what Jesus has done for us. All of your hope, everything, is fulfilled in the Son of God. So we wait in the midst of our dreams for him to fulfill. And how do we do that? We trust, trust, trust the newborn king. Amen? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, this time where we think about the waiting and we think about the space between our dreams and we see them maybe not fulfilled in any which way we imagine. We see our dreams crushed and unfulfilled, Father, and that causes within us just, just, just pain. And sometimes more than just pain, just anger at you because we can't see what you're doing, Father. I ask for us that we might come before you and intertwine our dreams with you. Father, show us your best for us. Show us what it means to live our lives with your vision for what we can be. And then as those dreams come and go, and maybe, Father, these dreams are not to be fulfilled until we are gone. Father, put your spirit within us. Give us that patience to wait, to wait and hope wait in hope of what your son Jesus has done for us and will do for us for all eternity. We wait, Father, and we trust in you in the name of Jesus. Amen.